I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. Greetings. The snack is The tiny one. Today, we are going to give you a Did You Know episode. Did you know? And provide important clinical updates. But did you know? I, I probably didn't. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> I didn't. Probably not. I definitely didn't know about this first thing that JJ is going to tell us about. I'm excited about this. I was like doing the happy dance when I was reading about it because this could be amazing potentially. And I wish I had one now. <laughs> for you? Or well, not for or my not personal, for but for my, my creatures. For creatures, yeah. Okay. I'd slap it on the cat and be like, do you mm-hmm. hurt? Porky. Well, tell us what it is. Okay. So the device is called Pain Trace. Pain Trace, like T R A C E. Mm-hmm. Pain Trace. Pain Trace. Okay. So this is a device that allows the ability to measure chronic and acute pain. You can localize where the pain's coming from and keep track of pain trends over time. Huh. Interesting. It's made by a company called BioTraceIt. That's all one word with. The B in bio, the T in trace, and the I and T capitalized, hmm. in case you care. Bio-trace bio it. Bio-trace it. Okay. So this is a nifty little device. It can be used during an exam, mm-hmm. when they're moving around, during surgery, dentistry, and during recovery. So hmm. if you're ever questioning, do I have a good plane of anesthesia? Are they feeling this? You might could see it before you see it in your monitoring equipment. That's interesting. And see it during recovery. It sounds like it's going to be pretty useful. So the device is about the size of a deck of cards, and it has two sensors that are attached by wires. You attach the sensors with adhesive, and it immediately starts sending data back to a software-loaded iPad, and you can start seeing things real-time. So you can move a particular part of their body and see if it actually hurts. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, where do the little, is it, you said it's electrodes, where do they go? They said they were uh, attachments that it didn't say where. So I'm not sure okay. where on the body you're supposed to put them. I'm imagining like... Somewhere that's not going to be invasive. <laughs> well, I was imagining like ECG pads or like toilet Yeah, that's pads. kind of what I was imagining too. Okay. So you probably have to shave a spot would be my guess then. But yeah, since it's attached okay. with adhesive, I would think so. Okay. So the way it works, this is what it said in the article, uh, by measuring skin-based electrical activity, uh, that's indicative of pain within the body. And it gives you real-time data. Then it gives you a patient's pain score as well as isolating where the pain's coming from. So it's great because it gives the pet owner something to see. So you could potentially work more closely with a pet owner to help manage pain better. But it also is very useful when you're doing procedures as well. This was kind of my favorite part. It's been tested on humans because humans can be like, hey, that hurts. And there was a guy that they had tested it on. He had problems with arthritis in one of his wrists. So they put it on him and had him move the uh, wrist with arthritis and it showed that he had pain mm-hmm. and then they put it on the other wrist that didn't and it showed no pain hmm. so you can use it on people and so the people are like hey i'm in pain and like well this machine says you ain't oh i see <laughs> that could be useful that could be 
But there was another uh, story where they had talked about using it on a dog that had had a spinal injury, spinal injury, and they were kind of the owners were kind of questioning whether or not they should euthanize. And they're like, "Well, let's see if this shows us pain response." So they put it on the dog, and they did the typical pinches to see if there was in there was a pain response on the okay. machine. The dog may not have necessarily shown too much, but the machine did. So they ended up. Does electing not to euthanize, and the dog is now able not walk normally, but can walk again. Okay. So there's uh they're still doing clinical trials, but they're hoping to get it approved and get it out there ASAP. I think that's really interesting, mm-hmm. and I'm really interested to see sort of where these trials go, and uh, definitely we'll bring updates you know, to the podcast as they become available mm-hmm. um, because it, it brings up a lot of, you know, important opportunities. Like you were saying, applications for chronic pain, for acute pain, for intraoperative pain, for post-op pain management. I'm imagining that there would be applications in, you know, geriatric animal medicine, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, mm-hmm. rehabilitation medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and then even like trying to get owners to even give the damn pain medicine Mm -hmm, exactly. Um, because I can't even tell you how many fights I have with people about like your dog just had major surgery it needs its pain medicine and they just like refuse to believe that the dog could be painful and yet it's chewing out its stitches Mm -hmm. and acting a fool and I'm like I think that the dog just needs its pain medicine yeah Um, I think it would be a great tool as well for I don't know there's still the occasional place that may not believe in giving adequate pain medication in post-op. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, if it, <laughs> most of these clinics are not probably going to have this instrument anyway. But well, yeah. I don't know. I just feel like it might give your your techs something more to, because a lot of times it's up to techs to really advocate for pain control. Yeah. And because usually we're the ones that are watching the animal super closely, and it's up to us to be like, hey, I think, think we need some help over here and that can be just another tool to help with that so i don't know i've always been a a cheerleader for pain control and yeah so this made me super happy yeah i think that this is you know really exciting and there's a place for it if it's proven to be effective Mm -hmm. ultimately you know in a multimodal pain management scheme i think it probably won't take the place of you know professional yeah. Uh, observation and, and clinical skill as far as like mm-hmm. determining what to do. Um, I think you'll probably still need pain scores and things like that. But um, I think that it might be an important analog, mm-hmm. you know, something to uh, to supplement. That's exciting. Yep. I liked it. So what you you what you've got you've got a little interesting interesting too, don't you? Um, I do. So the thing that I brought to talk about today is a is a new type of diabetes treatment for kitty cats. Mm-hmm. So the name of the medication, this is like the brand name, okay? Mm-hmm. I think it's Bexacat. Like it's B-E-X-A-C-A-T. So I'm going to say Bexacat because I can't think of any other way to pronounce that. Can you? Mm-mm. Yeah, I think that's probably what it is. Uh, if you're listening to this and you know of a different pronunciation, please do let me know. <laughs> But so this is a new oral medication for feline diabetes. 
it is an SGLT2 inhibitor. That means sodium glucose cotransporter 2 inhibitor. Bless you. It is the first of its kind approved by the FDA for any animal species, though these medications have been used in humans for a little while. These medications regulate glucose levels not by controlling, you know, insulin levels or sugar in and out of cells, but they actually prevent the kidneys from absorbing glucose. Instead of allowing the kidneys to pull sugar back into the body and preserve it, the sugar is peed out instead. Mm -hmm. So the glucose elimination is just via urine excretion. Now, uh, this is exciting because sometimes cats will not allow you to give them a shot. Mm -hmm. And it's also exciting because occasionally I've had owners who refuse to give their animals a shot, right? They are squeamish with needles. Or maybe I have been concerned about the owner's ability to be able to consistently administer medicine, to remember on a schedule, to draw up the correct dosing. Okay, so sometimes if there is, um, you know, a concern on the clinician's part about the ability to give insulin, this might have a place. Now, it, it is new. So anytime we're starting off with a new thing, it's possible that we don't know all of the little pitfalls of it yet. But I wanted to present some information based on the drug insert and basically like the clinician data info sheet thing, you know, that uh, might allow people to better understand whether this would be a good fit for their practice or for maybe even their own cat. So this is labeled for healthy cats who have not been previously treated with insulin for their diabetes mellitus. Mm -hmm. The reason that that is a stipulation of treatment, at least right now, is that this does not provide insulin to the cat. So in order for this to work and for the patient to not die of terrible diabetic ketoacidosis, they have to have some insulin production, Mm -hmm. right? So this is why this is only a thing for cats and not for dogs. If you remember way, way back in our very first season, (laughs) it's been a hot minute, but we covered diabetes in kitties, right? Mm -hmm. So kitty cats, most of the time, have a type of diabetes that's more akin to, quote, type 2 diabetes in people, where we are having insulin resistance and potentially even experiencing some glucose toxicity, which is an interesting phenomenon in cats. But it's not that they can't produce insulin at all. Now, they can progress to that point. So if you get chronic pancreatitis, something like that, the pancreas beta cells can be like, now I don't work anymore, and they mm-hmm. can become truly insulin dependent. But most cats don't start out that way, okay? So what they're saying is this cat needs to be able to produce its own damn insulin. Mm-hmm. And one of the best ways to like ensure that is to use it in cats that have never had to have insulin before. <laughs> because mm-hmm. we're like, probably those still have insulin. Yeah. Now, you might be thinking, wouldn't it be easier just to test the cat and see if it makes insulin? But there is no way to do that. <laughs> So there is no test to test for endogenous insulin production in the cat. That would be great. Yeah. But it doesn't exist. So for now, then, we're going to use it in healthy cats. I mean, except for the fact they have diabetes um, (laughs) that have not been previously treated with insulin. It is a single tablet given once a day. Okay. Mm. You know, there is minimal risk of development of hypoglycemia. So a low blood sugar event is uncommon. Okay. Bonus. Pretty exciting. Now, uh, there are some potential pitfalls, as with anything, Mm -hmm. right? So you got to have 
really careful patient selection. It can only be used by cats who are not dependent on insulin from the syringe, like we just talked about. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do not want to use this with insulin or in cats that need insulin. We want to screen really carefully for kidney, liver, or pancreatic disease, and they have to be monitored for ketoacidosis. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about this here a little bit more in a minute, but these cats can actually develop ketoacidosis with their blood sugar being normal. I it's a I just hang on. Like I was like, what? How is that even a thing? But uh, we're gonna get to it in just a second. Yikes. Yep. And then we need to make sure that it's used in cats who aren't sick from their diabetes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this is not for your cat who comes into the clinic and gets diagnosed with diabetes when it's like, you know, on its last damn leg. Okay. Mm-hmm. We're looking for the well-diabetic cats, if you will. Well is in quotation marks. So these are going to be the ones where the owner's like, hey, they even drank a little bit more water. Mm-hmm. Or maybe the owner hadn't noticed anything. And then on their annual exam, you're like, damn, they've dropped a pound. Damn, they have sugar in their urine. Damn, they have all the signs of uh, diabetes. Okay. <laughs> Not for the ones that have stopped eating or lethargic or dehydrated. Okay. 6.6 pounds or heavier. Can't use it in the little bitty shrimpy ones that have lost a lot of weight already. Mm. Okay. So this is a quote like from the package insert and the FDA like news releases and things like Mm -hmm. this. Okay. So quote, cats treated with Bexacat may be at an increased risk of serious adverse reactions, including diabetic ketoacidosis or euglycemic, that means normal blood sugar, diabetic ketoacidosis, which can be fatal. Cats with diabetic ketoacidosis or euglycemic ketoacidosis should be treated as an emergency, including discontinuation of Bexacat and initiation of insulin therapy. All cats who receive Bexacat should be examined and have blood tests at regular intervals following initiation of treatment. Cats should be carefully monitored for lack of appetite, lethargy, dehydration, and weight loss. Cat owners who note any of these signs should stop Bexacat treatment and immediately take the cat to a veterinarian who should assess the cat for diabetic ketoacidosis or euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis, end quote. Okay, so you're looking at me in a weird way. Okay, so um, because of the way that this medicine works, by basically forcing the cat to pee out all the sugar, we might not see the hyperglycemia that we would typically associate with a ketoacidotic state. It's not really the high blood sugar in diabetics that makes them ketoacidotic. It's the lack of insulin. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? Like, it's the relative lack of insulin over time. So if the cat has diabetes and it's not making enough of its own insulin, and you're giving it medicine that causes it to pee out all the extra sugar, then you're going to have a cat who's in ketoacidosis functionally, who is burning their you know, fat stores for energy, uh, who has all of the symptoms of that and is producing ketones because they're burning their fat stores for energy, but who might not have a super high blood sugar because you're making them pee the sugar out. You see what I'm saying? Mm, gotcha. Okay. So classically, what we've used to diagnose ketoacidosis in diabetics has been the presence of pretty sporty blood sugar, electrolyte abnormalities, and then ketones in the urine. And so, you know, we we need to monitor for those things. Now, ketone strip that you like urinate on is not something that's super easy to test cats for at home unless you have a cat that just will pee on commands. <laughs> <laughs> like I will say, okay, my one cat, B. Arthur, 
She does not like to use a traditional litter box. She uses a litter box with puppy pads in it. Okay, I know it's weird. It's what works for us. Keeps her for peeing in my house. I'll take it. Mm -hmm. I'll take it any day. And actually, the puppy pad thing is a lot more friendly cleanup than litter anyway. I'll be honest with you. But anyway, so if I were in that cat to flip it over, she would still pee on that vinyl surface and I could like collect. So besides B. Arthur, my one cat who I can pretty much get a urine sample from any day of the week, at no point would I ever be able to like monitor ketones in Mm -hmm. my own cats, right? In the urine. So one of the best ways to do this is actually to check um, a blood test for serum beta-hydroxybutyrate so so we can screen for ketosis. And they don't say in the handouts and stuff like how often you want to do this. They didn't say a specific time frame, but to me, it would need to be pretty often. Like based on the just general information about diabetes that I know, based on no data from the company or anything, my thing would be like probably every three months at least, Mm -hmm. right? And maybe more often than that. Yeah. So I'm really interested to see like, how is that going to play out? This is also one of those things where you need to make sure that owners understand that this is not a ride off into the sunset on this medicine forever situation. Because just like kitty cats who are on traditional insulin regimens might become dependent on insulin, meaning that they don't make any anymore, the same thing might happen in these cats. So Mm -hmm. even if, say, they've been like, oh, I've been on it for two years and I've been fine, that doesn't mean they're going to be fine on it for five years. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So you do still have to keep up with the monitoring. And it's not like a, quote, cure for diabetes. It's just an additional management strategy. That being said, I think that there's room for it. You you know, there's always going to be some trial and error when you have new things of like, what are the correct parameters? How often do we need to truly monitor? Like they say in all of the paperwork, monitor regularly. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean daily? Does it mean weekly, monthly, every six months? Like, what are we talking? (laughs) That part is a little frustrating for me because I would like to know, like, please tell me the exact (laughs) information. I'm hoping that this new medication will be included when they put out, like, say, the next AFP guidelines for diabetes management. Mm -hmm. That would be really exciting thing for me to see. Like, what is that going to look like? Um, So I don't know of anyone in person who, like, clients or vets who have used this. Because I'm not in general practice right now, there's less of an opportunity for me to use it because if a cat's going to come to the ER with diabetes... It's not going to be appropriate for this medicine, yeah. you know, like it's that cat. If we're coming to the ER for our diabetes, we need insulin. We're on life nine. That's right. <laughs> so I'm really interested to hear like people's experiences with this. The other thing, too, is that it always makes me wonder, like, would I rather as a pet owner give an insulin shot or would I rather give a tablet? And I'm going to say it depends on which of my cats you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Because because I have had cats in my life that would do anything for a pill pocket. You know what I'm saying? And like those cats will eat the medicine every damn day of the week. It does not matter as long as you give them that pill pocket. Mm-hmm. And then I have other ones who are like, bitch, what? Mm-hmm. Like, you, I'm not eating that shit. Get out of here with your weird treat, you know? Yeah. So um, for like B. Arthur, for example, she's on steroids for her GI illness. I give it to her every day in the pill pocket. And if she doesn't eat the pill pocket, then I know whoo, mm-hmm. we're having a GI flare up because she's the damn pill pocket every time. 
So if she became diabetic, <laughs> which is not <laughs> I'm about to say, you impossible. better knock on something. I know, right? My other cabbage eye disease, I made diabetic with its steroids. <laughs> like, why not? <laughs> if we were talking about that type of cat and she fit all the parameters, I might try that type of cat on this first because it sure is easy to throw down a pill with uh, in a pill pocket for mm-hmm. and not have to worry about refrigeration of the insulin, getting the syringes, getting the refills on time. When is it expired? Did we leave it on the counter accidentally? You know, and all that bullshit. Um, Mm -hmm. Plus, like a twice a day insulin regimen, you know, making sure someone is giving the cat something every 12 hours. Like, that is a pain in the ass. Like, I've done it before. I really feel for owners of diabetic animals who have to do all that timing and stuff because, it is really hard mm-hmm. just to live like a normal life. I can't guarantee that I'm home every 12 hours, you know, yeah. like so people who live alone, who are like going back to school, who have other people that they take care of. Maybe they have kids, they have elderly relatives they help care for. I'm just like, girl, I don't know how you do this. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited to see where this goes. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I like it. Uh, because they're making these warnings about, you know, like making sure that the pancreas is healthy. I don't necessarily know that that's a pancreatitis warning. I think that what they're saying is make sure that the pancreas has adequate beta cells to secrete insulin. I did not see the word pancreatitis anywhere as I was like researching this. (laughs) But if someone is listening to this podcast and you know different, send us an email. Yes, you have to read it. All right. Well, that actually ran a little bit longer than I thought. So (laughs) we're going to like stop this episode with the two did you know facts and save some of the other ones for later. But we have a few more minutes to do a favorite thing, which we haven't done in a little while. Mm -hmm. So, JJ, do you want to go first? Okay. 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 Uh, So had my annual Halloween Family Halloween party. Okay, that was um, a couple weeks ago in podcast world. Yeah. In real world, it was just like two days ago. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so this year I decided to go a little crazy and have a theme. So we did a zombie prom. Zombie theme. prom. We have talked about the zombie mm-hmm. prom. Okay. It was interesting. Do um, you have portrait photographs oh, for yeah. us? Oh. Um, I did. We, we, my husband and I uh, constructed a balloon arch. Mm-hmm. There was some learning curves to that. The balloon arch was cattywampus for the entire event. And then today, when he was about to take it down, realized how to make it actually go into a normal arch. Well, now you know. Yeah. So now you know so I've never have to make a balloon arch again. Hell um, yeah. I want you to make a balloon arch <laughs> for my graduation. Hey, Yay! All I got to do is buy <laughs> balloons because we got the rest of the stuff. Also, uh, tying off uh, over 100 balloons will make oh. your index finger quite sore. But that's too many balloons. Never mind. I rescind my it, it wasn't request for a balloon it was, arch. <laughs> it was mainly just the type of balloons because I was stupid and got a pack of balloons that were different sizes. Mm-hmm. It's better if you have all the same size. Hmm. And we ended up having to go and get more balloons. And I just grabbed the pack that said black. And unfortunately, they were a matte black where the other balloons were all shiny. So then we had to, like, alternate the different balloon rings. It was it was an ordeal, Mm -hmm. but really not as big as it was a little time consuming, but not, you know, I didn't find I thought it was going to be a lot more difficult than it was. Okay. It's just well, it's always like a learning curve when you're trying something new. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe now you'll 
now you're a professional at balloon arch making. You mm-hmm. can start renting it out for people. I don't know if I call it professional. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's a very cheap balloon arch. It was like less than $20 for the whole kit. So, yeah, but it, it, it did its job and we had prom pictures. Nonsense, JJ. You are now a professional balloon <laughs> arch and party planner. Um, No. Yes. <laughs> no, 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 no. I am very disorganized party planning. But it was fun. We kept the balloon arch a surprise. So when people saw it, they were excited. <laughs> we had some interesting pictures. And my plan is to kind of go through them, pick out the best ones and put them in frames to give the Fanford family oh, members. Oh, yeah, that's a so, great, like a good Christmas gift. Yeah, yeah. it'll probably just be like give them a Thanksgiving party that we're having next month because they're all like, we want to see pictures. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I threw them up on the TV from my phone while they were all here. So just go through them real quick. But uh, even my dad participated. Wow. He had on a, a tux T-shirt <laughs> and a, yeah. a, a mask and a top hat. It was funny. Well, that's exciting. We'll have to, with their permission, post mm-hmm. some photos from the party on yeah. social media. Yes, that, that, was, that was some good ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like it was a big hit. It was. What you got? Uh, well, I'm going to have a recommendation for my favorite thing. Sweet. Today, I was expecting to have a bright and shiny new episode of Heavyweights podcast Mm -hmm. by Jonathan Goldstein. But instead, they were like, we're working hard on our episode for next week, which is always like, ah, crap. But they were like, instead, we're going to bring you an episode of another podcast that we think you should listen to. Now, normally, that kind of thing pisses me off. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't like podcasts I haven't consented to being played on the feed of things I've signed up for. Like, Mm -hmm. that's why we don't do that, for example, on IntraVet's feed. But this time, I just let it play, and I was like, damn it, like, you are right. Like, this is something I'm interested in. So then I started on the whole rest of the podcast. (laughs) So you might have heard about this case. The podcast name is The Retrievals. And this is a podcast about the scandal at Yale where a fertility nurse was diverting fentanyl for her personal use. And as a result of that diversion, many, many patients underwent painful fertility procedures without the benefit of anesthetic, Mm. meaning that they were drawing up and giving medicine that they thought was fentanyl, but was actually just sterile saline that the nurse had replaced into these vials. Ouch. And so the podcast goes through, you know, the experiences of these women Um, telling people like I am in excruciating pain and not being believed or being dismissed, being told like you've already received the top doses of medicines that we can give you. Um, You're being dramatic, you know, that kind of thing. And then finding out the, you know, what had been happening and the degree to which it had been happening and the length of time. And uh, so I would just strongly recommend that to anyone who has interest in those areas. I think in particular, information about substance use and substance diversion is important for veterinary professionals to stay aware of, if only so that you can help yourself and your colleagues understand that we have to continually update practices about, like, how are we going to look for these things? And and shit like this happens. Mm -hmm. It also highlighted for me, like, I mean, this was an egregious level, like, When they finally found out what was going on, and I'm only through the third episode, like, so I have not listened to the whole series, okay? When the ruse was discovered, 
It was because an anesthesiologist noticed that the safety cap on a vial of fentanyl was like kind of like not quite on good, and that prompted an investigation. But at that time, they're talking about like this nurse had like over 100, I think it was like 175 vials of fentanyl at her house, at her house, girl. How? And I'm just like, what? How, how does that even occur? How are you missing that much? And I mean, what the fuck? If you notice a pattern of patients over and over claiming to be in pain, wouldn't, what, that, wouldn't a light bulb go off? Maybe not. I mean, clearly, no. Clearly, the answer is no, it didn't. I mean, if if we were noticing a trend in something doing something weird with anesthesia in two or three dogs in a week's time, I'd be like, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think um, people with our personality who maybe tend towards like anxiousness just a little. What's going on here? <laughs> exactly. <Suspicious. laughs> do, do I think that that's true of everyone? I mean, c- clearly not. Or maybe it's a veterinary thing. I think veterinarians and veterinary professionals as a group are highly superstitious. Well, that means so... <laughs> you do have to because the dog can't say, hey, I hurt. But if you yeah. if they're showing you something, yeah, they're not doing good. And you're watching. Yeah, yeah. I, can see that. I, I mean, I remember a very specific situation in my career where I was routinely having patients wake up under anesthesia and I was like, Something is wrong with the inhalant anesthetic. It Mm -hmm. has to be. Like, I've looked at every other thing, and we had had it serviced, and people were like, no, it's working fine. And then I was like, no, it's fucked up, and I am not doing another surgery until y'all fix it. Mm -hmm. And then they came out and found, like, this really weird problem, and and that's what it was. Mm -hmm. I think the vets and vet professionals tend to be superstitious and kind of look for patterns to the point that, like, if, you know, one surgery ever goes wrong and you've used this one drug, you're like, I'm never using that drug again. Yeah. And I think maybe I've it's, witnessed that and that's not great. <laughs> it's possible that human medical professionals are not like that. Mm. <laughs> so, anyway, maybe maybe we can find a nice middle ground. Yeah. <laughs> somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, Don't deal in absolutes. But yeah, like the fact that no one put these things together. And, and again, I'm not fully through the podcast. I do know that this nurse was in some capacity responsible for following up mm-hmm. to see how the patients were doing. So was she changing feedback, changing mm-hmm. information? I don't know yet. And was but, she using it herself or for distribution? Yes. No, she was using it herself. Jeez. That's um, scary. Yeah. Yeah, she was using it herself. So, but yeah, they they get to the part of the third episode. I was actually listening to it as I drove up to your house to record. And I just about like choked on my drink when they were like, she brought back 175 vials from her house. I was like, what the fuck? I feel like at the veterinary hospital, if one vial was missing, Dude, it if, would be like, if like one, flash if one third of a vial was missing, right. my butthole would be so vials. puckered. Uh, oh, how, how does that happen? I don't know. How, how are you missing over 100 vials? I, I have no idea. And they're just hanging out at her house. So she would like, it was talking about how initially she started doing it at the clinic. She would, you know, use a needle to go in and withdraw the fentanyl and then re-inject um, sterile saline to make up for it. And sometimes she would withdraw all the fentanyl, sometimes just part of it. So the vials she was restocking as fentanyl so it would, measure. would either be just saline or sometimes it'd be like a mixture. And so that's why these patients were painful because they were being given well, that the medication. Well, that would make sense why they didn't miss it either because, I mean, if you're checking the bottle and 
I mean, the way we would check it is we would have a bottle that was empty mm-hmm. and we would fill it different portions of fluid and mark the numbers on the bottle for measuring. So if you look at it and compare it to that other, I don't know, there may be a fancier way to do it. I'm sure with drug machines and stuff. But that's the other thing is a lot of places have these like machines that you have to code to get out of. But then again, if you're replacing it. Yeah. Or they weigh, it can you know, trick it. Yeah. sometimes you weigh the yeah. bottle. But like my thing is the vials themselves. How the hell do you accumulate that over a hundred vials at your house? And no one is like, yeah. you know, we're missing over a hundred vials. And like what? She had to have been messing with the. What am I trying to say? JJ. Inventory. There it is. The thing that you did for so long. Inventory. That's. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. It, in my opinion, if you're if 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 you're doing stuff like that. I was always comfortable when I was doing controlled drug counts. Is there somebody near my? I want them. I want them to near me and watching yeah, me. Like someone, yeah, an impartial you need, person. Yeah, observing. you need to have a witness mm-hmm. to you know when you're pulling up your drugs. I mean, when I used to pull up drugs, I'd pull them up and I'm like, this is what I'm doing. This is how much I have in my syringe. Here's my calculations. Doctor comes in. Please double cal- calculations. Here's or recheck them. Here's what I pulled up. Look, yes, good, okay, we're good yeah. to go. Because I mean, I don't want that to all be on me. Well, and it, I'll be honest with you, I, I found myself feeling some anger listening to this podcast and thinking about all of the things in veterinary medicine that we do to ensure that there's no diversion, to prevent diversion, to check and see and that kind of a thing. And for just this major institution to have such a severe you know, breach of their security protocols is like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. like, how did that even happen? It's just some people coasting on everything's fine and either blinders or they're maybe not feeling comfortable if they thought something was suspicious. Oh, maybe. Or you're just assuming that, OK, you've got somebody who's super trustworthy. They're fine solo. They can handle um like you've been know. here for forever, so you kind of just kind of trust that person yeah. or whatever. Like, I don't know. So anyway, I know that that's a weird thing to say for my favorite thing. It's not so much a favorite thing as that it is a recommendation. Yeah, but I'm it's like it. any kind of thing like that of like like a medical malpractice. I mean, because it was like that Dr. Death one. Yeah. That's crazy. Isn't it crazy? Crazy. I've listened to every um, season of that. And every time I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It makes me, I don't want to go to doctor. (laughs) I mean, my dad, when my dad was alive, my dad had open heart surgery. Well, shortly after my dad had open heart surgery, his doctor was brought up on charges for essentially recommending surgeries that weren't required basically falsifying the results of like heart caths and things like that and saying that more people needed bypasses than really needed them Ow. and so it's like i mean you think well these are one-off things and thank goodness they are but it happened when you're the one person it happens to man it's terrible mm-hmm. yeah that's not cool well, anyway, so if y'all are interested in that kind of thing, if you liked Dr. Death, you know, when we talked about it on the podcast before, this is something to uh, look at. I will just say, like, trigger warning, obviously, these are women that were going in for fertility procedures. So trigger warning, you know, fertility issues um, and things like that. So you, if if that's a sensitive topic, you might consider skipping this one. But I think it really highlights 
some of the ways in which people can still get around anti-diversion uh, protocols, and it might uh, make you kind of think twice about the way that you handle things in your practice. So, yeah, don't let anyone take home over 100 vials of fentanyl for sure. <laughs> what the fuck? All right, guys. Well, that's all the time we have for the snack episode today. Be sure to join us next week for our first ever Thanksgiving episode of the podcast. Oh, snap. That's right. That makes sense. If you have stories, questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media or on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And it's at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Show do. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.